survey of the message of Exodus, and we'll start today in chapter 4. Last week we began considering a new theme uh, in the book, remembering now that the overall theme of Exodus that we're trying to deliver here, or to set forth rather, is that of deliverance. Deliverance from bondage, deliverance from sin, both objectively and subjectively, and then the service that must be rendered uh, unto the Lord in view of that spiritual deliverance. Emphasizing that most of the gospel themes that we are going to have developed in the entirety of the Scripture, in many ways, find their first real explanation. Uh, here in the book of Exodus. It's a profoundly important theological book, a profoundly important historic book as well. Now, as we've been looking at this over these past few weeks, uh, I am simply trying to summarize some of the, uh, the great themes uh, in the book. We focus, first of all, upon why God delivered these people, emphasizing His covenant promise, uh, that had been given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the compassion that he had upon these people. But a great emphasis upon the fulfillment of God's covenant promise. We focused a great deal of attention upon how God delivered the people. First of all, by looking at the manifestations of his power uh, as he delivered them with that right hand, that right arm of his strength, of his power, evidenced in the plagues, uh, evidenced in his uh, easy destruction, if you will, of the armies and the forces of Pharaoh. And then the great emphasis upon the blood, delivered by power and delivered by blood. And that certainly was a great focus and a great emphasis uh, in the book of Exodus and points uh, so wonderfully to the spiritual fulfillment of that uh, in our redemption from sin. Uh, delivered by God's omnipotence, but certainly that great focus upon the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. And we spent some little time in uh, the Passover chapter, uh, emphasizing how that indeed is a picture prophecy uh, of the work of the Lord Jesus. And we'll see more of that as we come to another theme uh, in the book of Exodus. Now, last Lord's Day, uh, I started to consider uh, who it is, who are these people uh, that God delivered? Uh, and... I think we're going to be impressed, I'm impressed certainly, as we look at the descriptions that God gives of these people, uh, the great work that grace accomplished uh, for these people. Uh, when we first meet them, uh, they are slaves, uh, they're in bondage, uh, they are nothing. But grace intervened, the power of God intervened, the application of the blood intervened, uh, and there was a great transformation in these people. And the descriptions then that God gives of these people uh, are uh, certainly, uh, certainly remarkable and points to, and I think this is one of the things that impresses me the most, and I trust will you as well, uh, that when we see the descriptions of these people uh, in the book of Exodus, how God described them, uh, it's exactly the same way that God describes us that we have in the New Testament. Uh, the same terms, the same descriptions uh, that describe those describe us. I think speaking volumes then to the continuity uh, that there is in the gospel, the continuity that there is 
uh, in the people uh, of God. I have no time, uh, absolutely no time and no sympathy uh, for that notion that contends that the people of God in the Old Testament were one thing and the people of God in the New Testament were something else. Uh, it is utter and total folly. Uh, and the New Testament and the Old Testament knows nothing of that notion. Uh, when I see the same descriptions uh, describing the redeemed in the Old Testament and describing the redeemed in the New Testament, uh, I am, I think, forced to come to that conclusion uh, that we are dealing with a single people of God as far as the spiritual uh, entity uh, is concerned. Now, uh, I say we started this last Lord's Day. There were about 12 or 15 of us here, uh, so it's good to see the rest of you here uh, today. Uh, but we didn't get very far. Uh, we didn't get very far. We got uh, involved in an in interpretational difficulty uh, from Hebrews or from uh, Hosea chapter 11. It was, it was a lot of fun, and you missed out uh, on that. I will not repeat, I think, what we discussed at that time. But I do want to go through here uh, and just highlight for you some of the descriptions uh, of these people. And the first thing that we noted last week, and we'll pick it up here then, is that the redeemed are regarded as being the special children of God. The redeemed, those that he delivered from the place of bondage, are regarded as the children of God. Now, I've had you uh, turn to Exodus chapter 4 at uh, verse 22, uh, and we see uh, two of the statements here that I want to focus on uh, for a few moments this morning. Uh, this is still in the instruction that God is giving to Moses as far as uh, his call to deliver these people from Pharaoh, from Egypt. And verse 22 says, And thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. And I say unto thee, Let my son go, that he may serve me. And if thou refuse to let him go, behold, I will slay thy son, even thy firstborn. Uh, Israel here, designated by God, here are those that are going to be redeemed, and they are identified by God as being the sons of God, indeed the firstborn. What a special relationship that is, uh, as God designates these that are redeemed as standing in relationship with him as father and as son. Uh, God brought them into existence, uh, he reared them, uh, he provided for them, and uh, he loved them, he chastised them when necessary. Uh, everything that we understand about the father-son relationship is going to be uh, applicable here to God's describing these people in those terms. Uh, and that uh, certainly is a theme that we see all the way through the Old Testament. And that's what led to our discussion last Lord's Day on uh, Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him and brought my son out of Egypt. Uh, and the application that that has, uh, even to the uh, Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, that's the statement that the New Testament uses uh, to describe the deliverance of Christ uh, from the sentence that had been placed upon all of the innocents, uh, we call them, of Israel during the time of the birth of Christ. Remembering uh, when Herod issued that sentence, uh, trying to kill the Christ, uh, that all of the children of a certain age were to be slain. Uh, we know that the angel of the Lord warned Joseph, and Joseph then took Christ uh, into Egypt in deliverance, 
from that sentence of Herod and Christ at the very beginning of his birth, uh, the beginning of his life, rather, uh, knew that deliverance of God. And then Matthew says, when uh, this is a fulfillment of the scripture, when Israel was a child, I called my son uh, out of Egypt. Uh, and we talked a little bit, and I say I'm not going to go back into all of the implications uh, of that. Uh, but what God did, and what the, the point of analogy there is, and the point of comparison there is, that once there is this established relationship between God and his people as father and son, God is going to do, and God will always do, uh, in their behalf, uh, what a father would do for his son. And just as God delivered his son Israel... Uh, out of that place of danger, that place of bondage. So by analogy, we see him doing the same thing uh, in delivering Christ uh, from that sentence and from the execution uh, of that penalty that Herod had imposed upon all of the babies uh, of the land. God protected and God sustained uh, his people. Uh, and uh, it puts God, and this is the, the, the mystery of this in many ways, uh, it puts God, this father-son relationship, in a special uh, an obligated relationship with his people. Uh, look at chapter 6 now, uh, and we'll look at another term that is uh, directly uh, linked to this. In chapter 6 and verse 6, I think we've referred to this uh, segment before, verses 6 to 8 here, really encompassing many of the specific themes uh, that Exodus develops. Uh, but notice verse 6, Wherefore say unto the children of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rid you out of their bondage. And I will redeem you with a stretched out arm uh, and with great judgments. Now look at that word redeem. Uh, this word is directly connected and associated with a family relationship. Uh, we think of redemption sometimes, and be careful here, we tend to think of that word redeem always in the context of paying a price to get somebody out of trouble or to buy something back, and uh, very often that's the notion. Uh, but this word that the authorized version usually translates as redeem, another word that uh, is also involved here, but this particular word does not necessarily uh, involve the payment of a price. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, at the heart of this word is the existence of a relationship that exists between the two parties. God identifies himself as the redeemer of his people. This is the kinsman redeemer. All right? This is the kinsman redeemer. You're familiar with it, I suppose, most from, from the book of Ruth, where uh, Boaz is identified as that kinsman. Uh, and there was a kinsman that was nearer than he. Uh, and the whole point there is that because of that kinship, because of that relationship, there was an obligated behavior uh, that uh, was demanded. Uh, the, the family structure was so vitally important uh, in the uh, Old Testament, and certainly it remains, uh, it, it remains so. But the whole point is that because of that family relationship, because of the existence of that relationship, the parties that are so related uh, were obligated to act in a certain way, whatever the need was, uh, in order to uh, meet the, uh, the, the, the needs of that particular family member. Now, th this redemption... Uh, evidenced itself in various ways. Uh, you, you go back uh, in, in the 
uh, in the Pentateuch, and you'll find the regulations concerning the land, for instance. And, and here is the allotment of the land. This is just illustrates what I'm saying. Uh, and this is what we see partly, anyway, in the book of Ruth. Uh, here is the land that God gave to be the portion of a given family. Uh, the land was allotted tribe by tribe and family by family. Uh, the Lord says, this land is mine and I'm going to give it to you. Uh, but the Lord made the specific instructions that this land was not to be passed from tribe to tribe. Once the allotment was made, it belonged to that particular tribe, that particular family. Uh, they all received their inheritance from the Lord. Uh, but uh, if for whatever reason, because of debt, because of need, because of whatever, uh, that land had to be sold, uh, it became the responsibility of the near kinsman to buy that portion of land from that family member to keep it within that, uh, that family structure. That was his obligation. And if for some reason it was sold outside of that structure, then it was the responsibility of the kinsman redeemer uh, to purchase that, to bring it back in uh, to the family, uh, the family structure. That was his responsibility. Uh, that was an evidence of the kinsman uh, redeeming. There was a need there. Uh, and in that particular instance, what had to be done was the purchasing of the land. Uh, you, you read in the... Uh, authorized version of the avenger of blood. All right, the avenger of blood. Uh, that avenger of blood is this word that we're looking at right here. Uh, here was the uh, requirement given that if there was a murder committed, one of the family structure members were, were slain, then it was the responsibility of the redeemer uh, to uh, avenge that murder, to execute the justice against that one that uh, had uh, perpetrated that crime. Uh, that was his responsibility. He was the avenger of blood. But that is this word. Now, my point is that whatever the need was, uh, within that family relationship, the kinsman, the goel, the redeemer, had the responsibility to act in behalf of that uh, family member. Now, this is the word that God uses here. He is our redeemer. Uh, the psalmist plays upon this. The Lord is my redeemer. Uh, yes, that uh, ought to make us think of our initial salvation where we've been redeemed from sin, but don't limit it to that. All right? Don't limit I, 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 that, That's a wonderful concept, obviously. Uh, and that ought to rejoice our heart as we think of God's redeeming us from sin and redeeming us from uh, our uh, place in the kingdom of darkness and whatever else. That is a wonderful part of it, but it doesn't stop there. Uh, because He is our Redeemer, God obligates Himself. And I say this is the mystery here uh, and, and the uh, profundity of this particular concept that God who is limitless, uh, God who knows no bounds, because of this family relationship that he himself has instituted by his grace, he obligates himself to do for his people uh, whatever it is that they need. Uh, and uh, he is going to be faithful and he's going to be consistent and he's going to be uh, always uh, ready uh, to fulfill whatever it is uh, that he obligates himself to do. So when God is our Redeemer, it speaks of the family relationship that we have with him. We are his sons. Uh, and because of that, uh, I say that this is, is easy to say, uh, but it, I say it boggles the mind if you let it sink into your head, uh, that God obligates himself to his people. Uh, by virtue of that relationship, to always act in their behalf. 
uh, whatever, uh, whatever that is. And here are the sons. And they are called then the sons. There's a special obligation then uh, that God has to his people. Uh, at the other hand, his people then are obligated to him to love, to obey, to honor. We know what the responsibilities uh, of sons are to fathers. Uh, they must honor the father. They must obey the father. And that was part of the obligation. Uh, and we'll develop that theme here uh, in just a little while. But they're also called the firstborn. All right? Did you see that back in chapter 4? Uh, not only are they called the Son of God, uh, but they are identified as the firstborn. The firstborn. Uh, now this plays certainly uh, a, a great emphasis in the book of Exodus. We saw that in our discussion of the Passover. Uh, as, as God put the sentence of death upon the firstborn of Egypt. Uh, and we touched on that a little bit at that time. The significance of the firstborn. Uh, a position of honor. Uh, the firstborn was a position of privilege. Uh, under normal circumstances, the firstborn received the double inheritance. Uh, it can be a very literal uh, and a very temporal designation. The firstborn son is this particular uh, individual. But we see over and again in the Old Testament uh, that uh, by declaration and, if you will, by sovereign administration, uh, the firstborn could... Uh, go to one that was not the firstborn, uh, one that was the secondborn, or one that was somewhere down the list. By declaration, could be designated as the firstborn. Uh, we saw that certainly with Isaac. Isaac was not the firstborn of Abraham, uh, but Isaac received the firstborn blessing. Uh, Jacob was not the firstborn, uh, but Jacob received the firstborn blessing. Uh, so this could be altered by declaration, uh, which emphasizes that this is... Uh, a, a, a title of honor and a title of privilege, a title of rank and not necessarily just a title uh, of that which belonged to whoever happened to be the first uh, one that uh, was born to that particular, uh, particular family. Uh, Israel here is designated as the firstborn, a position of privilege, one that they received by grace, uh, one that was given to them by virtue, uh, of that absolute goodness uh, of God. Now, again, we come to the New Testament. And, and this is language that uh, the New Testament applies, first of all, to Christ, uh, and then applies uh, to believers as well. Let's look at a couple of uh, New Testament passages here where this same concept uh, occurs. And I want you to see here that in this title, The Firstborn, uh, it is a declaration of privilege, a declaration of rank, of honor uh, that belongs to that one that is, uh, that is so described. Uh, in the book of Colossians, in Colossians chapter 1 uh, and uh, verse 15, we have this statement concerning uh, the Lord Jesus, one of the great uh, Christological passages uh, in the New Testament. Uh, who is the image, speaking of Christ here? who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn uh, of every creature, uh, the firstborn of every creature. Now, this text, when we think about it and we apply the necessary theology, uh, explains how this word is being used. Uh, this obviously is not saying that Christ is the first one in time of creation. Uh, this is not saying that Christ is the first of the created beings. That would be heresy. Uh, 
Uh, and that is contrary to everything else that we see in the scripture concerning Christ. He is not created. Indeed, he is the creator. But yet we are told here that he is the firstborn uh, of creation. Uh, not a matter of time here, but here is the rank. Here he is the preeminent one uh, over creation. It speaks here of his sovereignty. Uh, it speaks here of that unique rank that he has over that which he himself has created. Uh, the firstborn, the preeminent one he is uh, over uh, all uh, that has been created. Uh, look at Romans chapter 8. Look at Romans chapter 8. At verse, uh, at verse 29. Uh, for whom he did for no. He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, uh, that he might be the firstborn uh, among many brethren. Uh, here is the relationship that Christ has to his people. Uh, they are called his brethren. We see that same expression in the book of Hebrews. Uh, what a remarkable relationship here that Christ is not ashamed to call his people brethren. Uh, but here among this people, uh, he is designated as the preeminent one. Uh, he is that one uh, where all honor and all glory and all privilege uh, belongs. So this is the theme that uh, we see designated uh, in terms of the Lord Jesus. But it applies to us. Look at Hebrews. And this is where ultimately I want to go here. Uh, in Hebrews uh, chapter 12, we see now this term uh, being applied directly to believers themselves. Hebrews chapter 12. Let's pick it up at verse 22. But ye are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable, innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly of the church of the firstborn. The church of the firstborn. I would render that in this way. The church which is the firstborn. And the term firstborn here is an appositional statement. It is identifying specifically and directly how this church is being named. What is the church? The church consists of this body of preeminent ones. Those that are made uh, to be in a position of privilege and honor uh, as far as the Lord. Uh, is concerned. What a position of privilege. And let this, I say, sink in. Uh, God's people are a special people. Uh, to be the objects of salvation, to be the objects of grace, uh, makes us a special people of all of the people of the world. Uh, of all of those people that have ever been created, God's people are a special people. Uh, we are unique. Uh, and we have and we stand in relationship with God uh, in this position of privilege, this position of rank uh, and honor that uh, those that are not part of this family uh, do not enjoy. We are special children. Uh, but this develops uh, even further. Can I say secondly then uh, that the redeemed are special people? Uh, they are special people. Uh, and we have other descriptions here apart just from the family relationship uh, that highlight uh, the uniqueness of the people of God. Uh, chapter 5. Chapter 5. I'll make the statement here. 
that the redeemed are God's people. Those that are redeemed are God's people. Uh, chapter 5, uh, verse 1, the Lord says, let my people go. And you see that particular emphasis all the way through uh, this context of Moses' speaking to Pharaoh, let my people go. This is the Lord speaking. Uh, this is not Moses identifying himself with the people. This is the Lord speaking. Uh, and these are my people. There is a unique relationship again whereby God possesses uh, these people and calls them uh, his very own. Uh, my people, that is the jargon. I'm not going to develop this theme completely here. Uh, but I want you to understand that that is the jargon of the covenant. I will be their God uh, and they will be my people. How often do we see that particular expression? Uh, in terms of the covenant promise that God gives to his people. I will be their God. They will be my people. For God to identify himself as their God and identify them as his people, my people, brings us, I say, uh, to the very heart uh, of that covenant relationship, uh, again, that is so vital uh, in our understanding of the whole issue of grace. And because of that covenant relationship, then God again obligates himself uh, to act uh, specifically and directly and faithfully uh, in behalf of his people. Uh, we are the people of God. But I suppose the greatest uh, term here that uh, expresses the specialness uh, of the people of God is that which we find in Exodus chapter 19 and verse 5. Let's pick it up here. Exodus 19 and verse 5. Now, therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. For all the earth is mine, but you will be a peculiar treasure. Now, that uh, word peculiar does not mean odd, obviously, uh, but it means special. It means prized. Uh, it is a treasure. You are my treasured possession uh, that above all the people uh, of the earth I regard you uh, as being. The prize, the royal treasure. How does God view his people? Uh, he views his people as a royal treasure. Uh, we are special. All right? The people of God are by grace by covenant, by redemption, we are a special people. The object, therefore, of special care, the object of special attention, the ob uh, object of the special protection of God. Uh, and I say this is an amazing, uh, an amazing truth. When you think of all the earth belonging to the Lord, uh, all peoples belong unto the Lord, all the earth belongs to that king of kings. But God declares here that of all the people uh, on the face of the earth, of all of the people that have ever been created in this earth, my people are my royal treasure. Uh, they're my prized possession. Uh, I regard them as being that royal treasure, that jewel, uh, that prized and that uh, well-beloved possession of mine. Uh, and, and I say that, to me, is a remarkable thought, and, and one that uh, I wish could, uh, could grip our hearts and could grip my heart as it ought to grip our hearts, uh, that, that we're special, that God's people are a special people. Uh, we uh, 
sometimes we, we, we get into this, and I understand, I, I understand uh, the, the spirit here, but, but we, we sometimes, and we, we Calvinists are good at this particularly, uh, to, to get into this worm theology, what we call sometimes worm theology. Uh, oh, I'm such a terrible rotten sinner. Uh, I, I'm such a terrible this, and I, I don't deserve anything, and I don't deserve this, I don't deserve that, I, I, all I deserve is hell. Well, that's true. That is true. But I'm telling you right now, because of Christ, I don't deserve hell. You see. Uh, and the grace of the gospel has changed things. The grace of the gospel has changed things. Uh, so we have to remember, and again, there's a balance here. All right? There's a balance here that we have to maintain. It is good. Uh, that we remember the pit from which we were dug, uh, that we remember that we were taken from that fearful pit and from that miry clay, and there's not one ounce of goodness in us, uh, that there's not one ounce uh, of merit within us that generated the love of God. Uh, there is a sense in which it is good for us to remember that. Uh, but at the same time, uh, it is not that we are to constantly be beating up ourselves and saying, Oh, what a worm I am, what a worm I am, what a worm I am. Grace has made us the special prized possession of God. Uh, and He treats us. He treats us differently. He treats His people differently. Uh, you, you think of this. If I, if I ask you this question, does God, uh, does God show favoritism? All right. Does, does God play favorites? Uh, does God show favorites? Uh, you say, oh, of course not. God is impartial. That he, well, it, it, put it in, in one context. You know, come, come to me and say, come on, clarify yourself, Barrett. You do this to me all the time. Uh, on one hand, uh, he is impartial. All right? And he deals with all men the same way. But understand, please, that because of grace, God indeed shows and plays favorites. And I know exactly who his favorites are, and it's us. All right, it's us. Uh, what good would grace be, if you will, if God didn't treat us any different than He treated the ungodly? He treats us differently. Uh, we stand in a prized and a special relationship uh, unto Him because of grace. We are special. Uh, we are special, uh, and, and that somehow ought to, uh, I, I say, to, to, to grab our hearts here. Uh, not that we claim that specialness. Uh, by virtue of ourselves, no, it's grace. And so there does need to be a little uh, reminder of worm theology, if you will. I'm not special because of me. I'm special because of grace. Uh, but grace indeed has made us uh, a, a, a special people. Uh, this is the word, look, look at Malachi. Uh, you know Malachi. It's a little different translation of this word, but it illustrates, I think, nicely the idea. Uh, that we want to see here uh, in Malachi chapter 4, chapter 3. <coughs> Verse 16, And they that feared the Lord spake often one to another. The Lord hearkened and heard it. And the book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. And they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels. And I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. Uh, if you have a marginal reading uh, in your Bible, you'll see that that word jewels uh, is the word special treasure. Uh, it's the word peculiar treasure that we see in Exodus chapter 19. Same word. Uh, same word. God says to his people, you're my jewels. Uh, you are my jewels. 
Uh, you are special to me. Uh, and therefore, if we see this imagery of the people of God being the jewels uh, of the Lord, uh, we can see it as then being the object of care uh, and protection. Uh, that He's not going to just, as it were, throw us around and uh, keep us among the pebbles. Uh, no, we are special. We're special. And this is the same word that, that we have in the New Testament. Uh, as we see in First Peter chapter two, as we describe, as Peter describes the people of God as being that peculiar people, it's the same idea here, Greek, but the same idea uh, of this peculiar, this special treasure uh, that God has made His people to be. Uh, we stand; they stood. We stand uh, in this unique, in this what can I say, but special relationship. Uh, on uh, and before uh, the Lord. Uh, what a statement of security that is. What a statement of privilege that is. Uh, as we uh, can reflect upon uh, the beauty of that, uh, of that special relationship. You know, we, we sing that song. I, I think of this often. And again, I, I understand uh, the, the, the import uh, and, and, and the sentiment of it. Uh, you know, Jesus loves... Uh, I forget how the last part. Jesus loves even me. All right. Jesus. Jesus loves even me. What what, what song is that? I am so glad. Jesus loves even me, uh, and, and that's true. And that's an amazing thought. Uh, but I, I, I like to think of this sometimes in this term that Jesus loves especially me. You see, that it's not just that He loves even me, but Jesus loves especially me. You see, I'm special. You see. And you're special uh, as we stand uh, in this unique relationship uh, with God. Sanders not here today, but I never will forget that time. Never will forget that time uh, when uh, she, she met me after a class. And uh, this was some, some years ago now. I ever tell you this story? She's not here, so I can tell you this story. Uh, she, she met me after class. This was in summertime. And I think she had been to one of the ladies' meetings that morning. And I think the preacher was going through Ephesians chapter 1. And uh, she, she met me after class. And I looked out there in the window uh, of, of the classroom and I saw her and, and she was crying. All right, she was just crying. And, uh, and of course, when, when I see that, the first thing that goes in, in my mind was, what did I do now? Right? Uh, and, and so I, I finished the class and, and, and I went out I went out there to, you know, comfort her as I want to do. Right? Uh, she, I, I've been, I've been a little servant. This has not been a good week in the Barrett house. Uh, I, I, I've not been feeling particularly well. And then Sander came down with something, and in, in, in all of my illness these last few days, I've just been, I've just been a little servant. I've been getting her this and getting her that. The, the woman has it good. Uh, but, uh, well, whatever. So, you know, I, I thought I had done something, of course, uh, and uh, under normal circumstances, that probably would have been the case. Uh, but but I, I finally got out to her, and she's crying, and I says, what's the matter, what's the matter? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and and she, she's crying, and she says, I'm special. And I says, yes, I know you are, right? I know you are, you're special to me. And she says, no, 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 I'm special. Yeah, yeah, I know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it finally dawned on her, and finally I got her through all the blubbering uh, to, to figure out what she, it 
the, the beauty of grace finally dawned on her. All right? uh, and going through Ephesians 1 there, it finally dawned on her uh, that in the sight of God, grace had made her a special possession of God. Uh, and, and she's not in many ways been the same since. Uh, I, I can't take advantage of her as much as I used to. That's good. That's good. But it's, it's, a, it's a powerful thought. Or I'm, I'm saying to you it's a powerful thought. If we can realize that all the earth belongs to the Lord, uh, everything there belongs to Him, but of all of that stuff out there that belongs to Him, I am special. All right? There's a unique and a special relationship. We are the jewels uh, that belong unto the Lord. We're special people. Third thing. Uh, that I see describing the people of God here is that they are special priests. Uh, the redeemed are special priests. We're still, I'm still anyway, in Exodus chapter uh, 19. Uh, this is a most important passage here. Uh, but look at, at verse 6 now. Look at verse 6. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A kingdom of priests a royal priesthood, a kingdom that is constituted of priests. Now, there's a sense uh, here in which it refers, I think, to there being a kingdom of priests, kings who are priests, a royal priesthood, all of that is involved here. Uh, but, the, but the notion here uh, is, first of all, a liberty. They are kings. They're kings. God has made them kings. There's a liberation here. They are not owing their subjection to any man. They've been liberated. There's a dignity here uh, in this relationship that they have under the Lord. There's no man that they have to call their master. But the idea of the priest is there that special consecration uh, under the Lord. That special consecration under the Lord. Uh, bound to his service. The priests were bound to his service. Uh, the priests were brought near to him and entitled uh, to go to that holy place. Uh, now, we're going to see in the book of Exodus how that was going to be illustrated, uh, this priesthood, uh, and the implications of this. This is profound theology here. All right? This is a profound theology that God regards His people as being priests. Uh, and I'm not sure they quite understood it. Not sure they quite understood it. Uh, and so God, as we're going to see, was to give them some object lessons of what that priesthood meant uh, as we come to the whole tabernacle ritual and the entire establishing here of this Aaronic uh, order to teach them, to teach them what being a priest uh, unto God was all about. Uh, I don't want to get into all the theological controversy again at this point, uh, that they rejected being priests and what... No, 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 no. Uh, that's not the idea at all. Uh, but God in His revelation, as we're going to see here, uh, was going to give a picture of what being a priest unto God was all about, uh, to give them understanding uh, of the beauty of this special relationship uh, that they had unto God. Uh, the priesthood here of the believer is something that we as Protestants uh, maintain uh, as being so vitally important to our Christian heritage. Uh, the access that we have unto God did these Old Testament saints have access unto God? Did they have access unto God? Sure they did. Sure they did. Uh, they prayed as we pray. 
uh, and uh, all of the implications of that prayer as they enter into the very presence of God. Some of the greatest examples of prayer uh, that we have in all the Scripture uh, comes to us from the Old Testament. Don't tell me uh, that these Old Testament saints did not have access unto God. Uh, now, we understand the role and the place that Christ uh, of necessity has in the opening up of that access. Uh, and that's the reality that all of this other stuff, as we're going to develop here in these next weeks, was pointing to. Uh, but they were priests, all right? They each one. Yes, there were going to be the object lessons of the mediatorial priest uh, to teach them the implications and uh, applications of what the priest was. Uh, but the reality was that God regarded these people uh, as standing in that unique, consecrated relationship uh, unto Him. And so it is in the New Testament. All right? And we'll close with this today. But you look at the New Testament, and we are designated as... Uh, that same priesthood. Peter does it in chapter 2 and verse 19. Or verse 9, rather. You need to uh, mark that statement, certainly. It's almost uh, direct quotation here of all of the statements that we have in Exodus chapter 19. You're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, peculiar people that you should show forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. There's our deliverance uh, from darkness to light. Here's what we are by virtue of that deliverance. Same terms uh, that describe the people uh, of God in the Old Testament uh, dispensation. And then in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 6, He hath made us kings and priests. Here's what grace has made us to be, a royal priesthood. Same uh, exact idea in chapter 5 and verse 10. And He's made us uh, unto God kings and priests, a royal priesthood. Uh, a royal body of consecrated men and women uh, unto the service uh, of the Lord. There's the examples of grace. That's what grace does. What a transformation grace makes uh, in the life of those who are the recipients and the objects uh, of that grace. A great privilege, but what a great responsibility it is as well because they were to be holy. A holy nation. Be ye holy because I'm holy. You've got to be like me, God says. Who is it that can ascend to the holy place? That one that has clean hands and a pure heart. The demands for holiness. Uh, and we're going to see a great emphasis uh, in Exodus on that theme of the manifestation of personal holiness uh, as well. If you're going to be special, if you're going to be in this unique relationship, then you're going to have to manifest and you must manifest uh, those, marks, uh, those marks of grace. All right, well, our time is gone uh, for today. We'll have a word of prayer and then we'll come back to this Lord willing next week. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do express our thanks for the amazing grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're thankful for the transforming power that there is in that grace. That we are not what we were because of grace. Uh, we're thankful, Lord, that grace has brought us into this unique and this special relationship with God. Uh, help us, Lord, to live uh, in the reality of that, impress upon our hearts all uh, of the benefit and the privilege as well as the duty uh, that we have as the people of God. Uh, let us rely upon your faithfulness, depend upon your goodness and your covenant dealings with us. Now help us as we move from this hour to the uh, place of worship. Meet with us, Lord, in the sanctuary. 
uh, speak to us, cause the means of grace to be well used today.